Hi, this is Jalen for Dobbs, where tire buying is easy. At GoToDobbs.com, shop brands, sizes, pricing, and our amazing deals. With 40-plus locations, get same-day install. For tires, it's Dobbs. For deals you can use, click on GoToDobbs.com now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is a character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN. A fresh perspective on the day's biggest stories. It's character and Smallman's Fresh Take. Powered by Schnucks. Eat good to feel great at Schnucks on 101 ESPN. Michelle, one first-year college football coach is doing great with his group, and another not so great. <laughs> During an interview with The Athletic earlier this week, new Florida State coach Mike Norvell, who was, by the way, considered by Mizzou, but it was kind of a fait accompli that he was going to go to the Seminoles, said that, quote, he had had a lot of open communication with his players and, quote, went back and forth individually with every player this weekend, unquote. Well, Marvin Wilson, his best defensive player, a star defensive lineman who's going to be a first-rounder next year in the NFL draft, disputed that Norvell reached out to players. He said that he and his, and his teammates will not be working out until further notice. Uh, Marvin Wilson saying, this is a lie, and me and my teammates as a whole are outraged, and we will not be working out until further notice. That's really bad for Mike Norvell, who has never coached a game at Florida State. It's really bad for a lot of reasons, but mostly because he wouldn't reach out to players individually and talk to them about this. He's a leader of young men. He should be having these conversations mm -hmm. with his players. And he sent a group text, and his excuse was, well, Marvin's right, but some players did text back, and I did communicate with them. It's also interesting to me that people are so self-involved sometimes that they think that no one will out them. That they think yeah. that they can tell this lie on a public forum and that everybody is just going to fall in line and not say, actually, it was a group text and mm -hmm. I wish he would have had this conversation with me. But I, I guess, especially in college football or college athletics, they think, hey, these are students. These are kids. They're going to do what their coach tells them to do. But it just shows you students have a voice. These student athletes have a voice and they want to be heard and they understand that they have a platform as well. And if your coach, especially a guy who's it's his first year and might not have a, these great relationships developed with these players yet. If, if he's going to say that, they are going to tell the truth. And some of new Mizzou coach Eli Drinkwitz players came to him and said, Coach, what can we do here that would cement what we feel and Drinkwitz got together with the Columbia Police Department he got together with the leadership of the University of Missouri the athletic department and a large group of people two days ago walked from the Mizzou campus to the Boone County Courthouse and 62 players registered to vote after they kneeled for eight minutes and 46 seconds which was the amount of time that the police officer kneeled on the the neck of uh of Floyd in Minneapolis and Drinkwitz held a press conference yesterday and talked about how proud he was that the players came up with it and he was able to be the coach of those players. First I just want to say how proud I am to be uh, the head football coach at Mizzou and how proud I am of this football team and this staff to stand alongside some very uh, powerful leaders uh, Ryan Walters, Brick Haley, 
C.J. Smith, Charlie Harbison, Marcus Johnson, Bush Hamden, Eric Link, Casey Woods, David Gibbs, uh, and countless others on this staff and our players for us to decide that it wasn't enough just to make a statement, but to also put action behind our words. It was a really powerful moment uh, for me personally, and I, I believe it was a powerful moment for our team for unity and cohesion uh, and to stand up for what is right. You know, I, I, I made this comment. This was a clear instance of right versus wrong. And that's what he wants his players to understand is there is right and there is wrong and they're doing everything they can to affect change in social justice in America by making a statement that is nonviolent but powerful. And listening to Coach Drinkwitz talk, can you just feel how genuine he is when he talks about the fact that he wanted to have these conversations with his players and that they not only wanted to put out the proper message, but that they did want to take action and that they, they came up with this together and they did it together as a team. And we... We talk about these players being young men, but they do have a platform and they are uh, an entity that people look to that can make a statement and it can enact change. And I'm I hear we are talking about them going to register to vote on on airwaves in St. Louis. And I know they're talking about it in Columbia and it was a story that people talked about all over the country. And if they could do that and not only put themselves in a position to say, hey, we've taken action. How many other people are going to look at what Mizzou football did and say, we want to do the same thing as well? And Coach Drinkwitz was asked what the thought process was behind getting players to register to vote? Well, because voting is about making your voice heard. Uh, It's about uh, creating a more perfect union. And we have, uh, if we want effective change, you know, change is not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we were backed up by the voice of President uh, Obama, past president, former President Obama yesterday, talking about the importance of voting. I think we've, we've you know, again, Coach Luper talked about you know the right the the right to vote was was in the '60s, and and they fought for a hundred years to get that, and that's that's our voice right now. And it wasn't about tearing stuff down or trying to create any type of violence or anything like that, but it was about uh, how do we create positive change through utilizing our voice. And we never we don't talk about who you want to vote for. That's that's strictly your choice. But the opportunity to vote instead of complaining, do something. And that is the bottom line when you have especially a group of young people that react and everybody's going to react negatively when they see and with they're going to be horrified by what they saw with the death of George Floyd. And obviously the Mizzou players decided we want to do something to make a change. And they look to their leader, the guy that Mm -hmm. is basically at college, your football coach, when you're a football player is going to be your mentor. Mm -hmm. And my personal opinion is that Eli Drinkwitz is doing the perfectly toned things to get his players to affect change. We haven't seen what he's going to do on the field yet, but I would say early returns, Mizzou hit it out of the park with this hire. Yeah, and can can you imagine, isn't, isn't it amazing how different the Norvell situation is and the, the Drinkwitz situation? Yeah, and I'm sure Norvell probably spoke to his players and, and I, I need to see what the next steps were there, but I, I would hope that if you made those comments and then your players came out and said, actually, we didn't have these conversations, that then you would use that as a teachable moment, too, to say, OK, well, then let's have these conversations. Let's talk. Let's grow as a team. Let's figure out a way to do something that we can all feel good about. And I thought one of the cool things about this is that players talked yesterday. Chris Turner and Nick Bolton talked about how 
that was just one day. And they they understand what Coach said to them about you, you can't just have one day and make an impact. That they, because of this, are wanting to use a good portion of their lives and their platform to try to affect positive change in, in the world. It's a ripple effect. What they did was amazing, but let's keep it moving. Let's keep it going. And I think if you've seen the steps that the Mizzou football program has taken, I have no doubt that they will continue to do positive things. That's Michelle. I'm Randy, and this is Character and Smallman on 101 ESPN. Next up, we're going to head into the Blues booth and find out uh, something that we don't know from our friend Joey Vitale. He's next on 101 ESPN. This is Character and Smallman. We're talking everything St. Louis Blues as we head into the Blues booth. The Blues booth presented by Boardwalk Hard. Hardwood Floors. The home show sale is going on now at Boardwalk Hardwood Floors. Update your home with savings on all types of flooring, including solid, reclaimed, wide plank, and more. Visit one of the showrooms in Crestwood, Manchester, St. Peter's, or online at BoardwalkHardwood.com. Boardwalk Hardwood Floors. Great floors for every home with better selection, better value, and the best service. Michelle, I thought I had had good sourdough bread in the past. And I, I had, but last weekend I got a, a loaf of the Joey Vitale sourdough bread. And? Unbelievable. I'm so jealous. Joey's the best. He's with us now on the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line. How are you, sir? Randy, I tell you what, I'm doing well. We had a great exchange last week. You know, carrot cake for sourdough bread. Your, your cake lasted probably, I think, two nights total. But I had to hide it. You know, I had to hide it because I got my kids, I, I called them mice. Like, I, I go to bed at night, and I'm usually the first one to go to bed, right? Because I'm exhausted. And then I just hear these little these little, these little toes uh, around the, the kitchen, and then they start walking around. And so I wake up the next morning, I see half the cake gone. I go, which one of you little mice got into the cake? And they have the biggest grins on their faces. So what I had to do is I had to cap it, and I actually hit it where we keep the lunch meat. I hit it in the back drawer and, like, covered it with lunch meat. So th- that was my only savior, else it would have been gone by the next day. Smart, savvy move. Except then, Joey, did the cake taste like lunch meat? <laughs> no, no, it didn't, because he he put a cap, like one of those clear those clear lids on top. Oh. So yeah, that, that was something I had to make sure of. But I tell you what, even if it would have tasted like lunch meat, it's still it's still the best carrot cake I've ever had. So thank you again, Randy, for oh, that. Thank you. That's a high compliment, and thanks for the the sourdough. It was spectacular. Well, I'm very jealous of this barter system you two have going on. But, Joey, since we're talking food, we have to bring you in on the debate of the day. During Take It or Leave It, we had this presented to us. So tell us if you take it or leave it. Honey mustard is the best dipping sauce for chicken strips. Where's your stance on this? Leave it. Big time. Leave it. Big time. Big time. Barbecue. I mean, nice, nice barbecue with some chicken fingers is really good. What did you guys say? I took ranch every day and twice on Sunday. Ranch is good. Ranch is solid sauce. Nothing nothing wrong with the ranch sauce. How about you, Michelle? I want honey mustard. I said if I have barbecue, ranch, and honey mustard in front of me, I'm going to use more of the honey mustard on my chicken strips. Yeah. 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 I think the, some people do the, the ranch and barbecue double dip. You ever tried that before? That actually has got some, that's got some stank to it. If you ever try that. <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Yeah, I don't know that I could uh, enjoy that. By the way, one of the problems I really have is that I do have chicken strips twice on Sundays. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I shouldn't do that. Uh, Joey, how cool is it? Doug Armstrong, and he's going to join us, by the way, at 930. But he told Jim Thomas that the Blues are players are going to determine when they come back for camp. And you've played, I'm sure, for coaches that gave the players ownership and coaches that were kind of iron-fisted. I would think that from a player's perspective, you have to love the fact that the franchise is giving you ownership of the product on the ice. Yeah, I think that's important, uh, Randy, for sure. You know, I think that a lot, a lot of the the dialogue right now is you see it, it it's players voluntarily coming back. You know, I, I talked to some of the players. I actually talked to one player the other day, and I said, is this is this really voluntary? And it actually wasn't a Blues player. I go, is this really voluntary, or is this something like, um, you know, it's your choice, but it's not your choice kind of thing. And And they told me, they said it sounds to me, from this team anyway, that it kind of is the optional skate um, methodology or mindset, if you will. And what I mean by that is uh, during the grind of the season, coaches will give the players uh, the optional in the morning. Do you, It's your option if you want to get on the ice and skate, or you can just go home, get some rest, and we'll see you at game time tonight. Now, it's an option for some players. But it's certainly not an option if you're a rookie or even like a second-year guy. You know, it's, they call it the, the optional, not optional, where it's, yes, it's optional, but it's optional for the top guys. And if you're a rookie, you better be on the ice. So it's not really an optional. And, and to me, it sounds like this next phase uh, kind of has a little bit of that with it, where the team says, yes, it's absolutely your choice. But I think these players want to get back, and they kind of feel like, ah, I want to get back, and I want to be a part of it too. So uh, as great as that is for the management to, to give them that option, I think you're going to see a bunch of competitive guys that just miss it and want to get back and, and are excited to get back to the rink or at least the training facilities come Monday. Joey, how much of an X factor do you think a healthy Vladimir Tarasenko is going to be to this equation? Oh, it's going to be huge. I mean, and, you know, I talked about Vladdy in, in the past a little bit in regards to this. You know, having getting Vladdy back in this situation, it, it's so much m- more important, I would say, because it's not just Vladdy being healthy and fully ready, but the whole other side of it is what does this competition look like? You know, it, you know, having a player come back, let's say he has surgery over the summer and he comes back in mid to late October. Okay. The competition in late October, right when the season starts, I mean, it, it's, it's ramped up. It, it's high intensity hockey, right? Same, same, same goes if a player comes back in playoffs. The competitors, the teams they're playing against, are at their all-time best. So when you have an injured player come back in either October or, let's say, May, it looks very different than, let's say, a player coming back in February when it's the grind of the season, right? And, and you can come back and you're healthy. And meanwhile, your, your competition, the six, uh, five, six guys on the other side of the red line, they're, they're at their lowest, right? They're exhausted. They're tired. So that's the, the coming back on an injury is always two equations. It's always how are you feeling personally as a player, but how is the other team going to look? So for Vladdy, it's going to be great that he's going to be fully healthy, but I think his biggest advantage here is that everyone's going to kind of be, for better or worse, sitting on their butts for the last three months, and, and he's going to come in fresh and healthy, and his competition isn't going to be as sharp, right? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Where he's going to have a little bit more of an edge, I think. So I think he's going to come back and, and have an absolute tear. You know, another player that isn't really talked about from the injury standpoint because he wasn't on the IR when the Blues uh, paused the season, uh, and Oscar Sundquist. He, he is a player that is so valuable to this team. 
And I, and I always call Oscar. He's like that old chewed up, uh, chewed up dog toy you give to your your golden retriever or your pit bull. And after two days, the eyeball's falling out. It's hanging by a thread. That's what that's what Oscar is to me because he shows up every day. He never takes a day off. He never takes a shift or a game off. But you see how he puts his body on the line every single night. And I know for a fact, before this pause, he was hurting. And he was probably a couple games away from being put on the shelf for a while. So that's another player that is going to be so valuable given all this rest. He's going to come back and be healthy uh, come hopefully sometime in July. Joey, I brought this up earlier in the show. Last year in the playoffs... Jay Bomeister and Colton Pareko were the best shutdown pair of defensemen in the NHL. And we love what Marco Scandella brings to the table. And the Blues have a lot of great defensemen. But that's one aspect to this playoffs that'll be different than last year is that you had one of the premier defensive defensemen of his era in Bomeister playing at a really high level. And Marco Scandella just hasn't done that before. You know, I think that Marco, from what we've seen, has certainly um, shown the coaches. Obviously, Doug Armstrong signed him to a, a new contract. It, it, they've shown enough, or they've seen enough out of him to think that this could be Colton Pareko's go-to partner for the next, next three years at least. So I think that you, you look at Marco, you look at his size, you look at his physicality. He's played in the central division. He's very comfortable. I mean, I remember when he came to the Blues, his first couple of days, if I didn't know any better, I, I would have guessed this guy has been a veteran on this team for the last seven years. I mean, he was very comfortable, smiling, getting along well with everyone. I, I think the fact that he's been in this league so long, he's been a part of this division, he's played against these guys so much, he just really kind of, from a personality standpoint, kind of came right in and just felt very, very comfortable. Now, I think that personality really translated on the ice. He didn't miss a drop. I mean, he didn't spend any time trying to figure out the new system or working out the kinks with his partner, Colton Pareko. Uh, you know, it's funny. Marco actually told me when he came here, uh, and I asked him about his adjustment, how it's been so successful. And he said, why wouldn't it be? I'm playing with basically the Connor McDavid as a defensive partner. He, I mean, he compared Connor McDavid is basically what Colton Pareko is to a D-man. Wow. If you're a forward, you get traded to the Edmonton Oilers. It's your dream because you're playing with Connor McDavid. For Marco, it's his dream to come to St. Louis and play with, um, you know, Colton Pareko. Pat Maroon, I was talking to him the other day. He plays with Victor Hedman, who has won multiple trophies. I mean, he's one of the most prolific, uh, highest-rated defensemen in the league. And he even said to me, he goes, Joe, I play alongside Victor Hedman. I, I'm not giving the edge to Victor Hedman. I would, I would put Colton Pareko above Victor Hedman as far as a complete defenseman. So I think Marco, in, in his own respect, has done so well individually, and he'll be the first to say it because he's got such a great partner in Colton Pareko. Uh, I think for the Jay Bowmey serve, part you were just asking me, Randy. I think what the Blues are going to miss a little bit uh, from being around these guys every day, I think they're going to miss his kind of calm disposition. I think that you look back over last year's playoffs, uh, hearing him talk about after Game 6 getting just shellacked at home versus Boston and then having to go back on the road for Game 7. I mean, listening to his interviews, you would have thought it was a preseason game based off how his tone. I-, I think that this team last year was so successful because there were so many big moments but they didn't have that uh, high-strung, high-energy, wiry group of guys that, that, that couldn't handle the situation. They had calm players like Jay Bowmeister. I mean, you look at Ryan O'Reilly, who's calm as a cucumber. Colton Pareko, probably the nicest guy in the National Hockey League. I mean, you go through all the leaders, they had a very calming presence in that room. Whenever you thought there was going to be some sort of panic, it never really happened because of that calm 
uh, the calm nature. And I think Jay Bowmeister was a big part of that. So I think that if there's one area where they're really going to lack this year because of losing Jay and now replacing Marco, it's going to be from a, a locker room standpoint when, when they're up against the wall, they're down in the third period, it's a deciding game seven. Will they have that same calming presence moving forward? Finally, we started this conversation with food. We'll end it with food. How does the Vitali family celebrate National Donut Day? <laughs> oh, man, donuts are my, like, that's like my biggest weakness. You know what I mean? I think that if you have to go with a donut, you got to go with the sprinkles. You got to go to long jump. I'm not a big fill up the donut. I don't know who did this. Who ruined the donut by filling it with custard? It just, it grosses me out. But the, uh, I tell you what, Tim Hortons has these French crullers. Mm-hmm. Have you ever had a French cruller? Oh, my God, those will blow your mind. <laughs> and then uh, they have these brioche ones. But um, the only, my, my, my two bugaboos, my two bugaboos with donuts, don't fill it with stuff. And then I never appreciate it when people actually dip a donut in coffee because then it just falls apart in your coffee. And then the thought of having to drink that coffee with all that crummy, slimy stuff at the bottom, it just kind of freaks me out a little bit. So get a dozen, fill it with sprinkles, get lots of color. And I think there should be no rules today for parents with kids. If, if it's National Donut Day, get as many boxes, let the kids eat till they get sick, and then you deal with the consequences <laughs> later. Very well said. Joseph, great to hear from you. Thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend. Michelle, Randy, always a pleasure. You guys have a great weekend, too. All right, brother. See you. That's Joe Vitale on 101 ESPN. I respectfully disagree. I like filled donuts. I, I'm with Joey. A little, little bit so too much for me. Cream filled? Yeah. The Schnooks cream-filled donuts. Mm. See, I'll just, I'm a classic glazed girl. There's nothing wrong with the classic glaze. For example, when I ride in the Tour de Donut in <laughs> Sutton, Illinois every year, uh, thirty usually about a 34, 36-mile ride, and you get five minutes taking, taken off of your time, your ride time, for every donut that you eat. And they're spectacular glazed donuts. And... I didn't figure this out until a couple of years in. But what they'll do is they'll squish three glazed donuts together for you. So that's 15 minutes right there. You eat them like a donut sandwich with both sides being bread and a donut being in the middle. So those are spectacular, the the glazed donuts. But if I'm at the greatest bakery in town, Schnucks, I will gravitate towards the cream-filled or the custard-filled initially. Not that I don't dislike. I'll eat all of them. But I, I I would gravitate towards the filled one. So you're getting rewarded for eating the donuts with your bike ride? Yes. What a great concept. And every year, the person that wins has a negative time because they <laughs> eat so many donuts. That's awesome. It's like the celery of exercise. It is. You, you burn more calories than it takes to eat. I love that. Yeah. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, The Fight on 101 ESPN. Think you can beat down Carriker? We sure hope you can. The Fight with Carriker, brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Your best choice for quality tires and expert auto service. Dobbs on 101 ESPN. Welcome back to Carriker and Smallman here on 101 ESPN. It's 833, which means it's time for the fight. Colin, what are we fighting for today? The winner of the fight will score a four-person pass to throw axes, knives, and a custom spear lane at the axe hole located in Collinsville, Illinois. Open now. It's the St. Louis area's premier axe-throwing venue. All right, Lee is our fighter today. Lee, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing just fine. All right, you ready to take on Randy today, Lee? Yeah, I got a history of losing to Randy four to three, so let's Ooh. see what happens. Okay, so you're a return fighter. 
Yeah. All right. Well, this is good to know. Hopefully, this time you can come out on top. All right, Lee. Question number one. Reggie Jackson is famous for his time as a New York Yankee, but which other AL East team did Jackson play for during his 21-year career? Was it the Boston Red Sox, the Baltimore Orioles, or the Toronto Blue Jays? I'm going to go with the Orioles. Question number two. Serena Williams has won 23 Grand Slam titles in her career. Good for second all-time in women's tennis. Which women's tennis player has the most Grand Slam titles? Is it Steffi Graf, Margaret Court, or Billie Jean King? Margaret Court. Lee, question number three. Happy 53rd birthday to Ray Langford. Shout out Ray Langford. He was enshrined in the Cardinals Hall of Fame in 2018. Which other player was voted in by the fans that summer? Was it Mark McGuire, Ted Simmons, or Vince Coleman? Um, I think Ted Simmons was last year. I'm going to go Mark McGuire. And question number four, which round was Drew Brees drafted in back in 2001? Was it the second round, the fourth round, or the seventh round? Drew Brees, a little bit short. <laughs> fourth round. All right, Colin is going to get Randy. I love the way you were deducing things there, Lee. I mean, you're right. Height well, is he, a big factor. He wasn't your prototypical quarterback, so we'll see how that works out. We'll see how that process plays out. All right, Randy is walking in. He's removing his mask. Randy, say hello to Lee. Hey, Lee, how are you? Lee is your fighter today, but he has also competed against you prior. He lost oh. you one other time in the fight, the 4 o'clock fight. Okay, great to have you with us, and thanks for listening to this particular show, and it's great to have you back with us, Lee. Thank you, Randy. Ready, Randy? Ready. Question number one. Reggie Jackson is famous for his time as a New York Yankee, but which other AL East team did Jackson play for during his 21-year career? Well, Reggie started with the A's in the AL West and ended with the Angels in the AL West. But in 1976, was traded to Baltimore for Don Baylor and became a free agent and joined the Yankees. Question number two, Randy. Serena Williams has won 23 Grand Slam titles in her career. Good for second all-time in women's tennis. Which women's tennis player has the most Grand Slam titles? I think that might be wrong. <laughs> I, I think Serena might have more, but she passed Steffi Graf. I will, I, if it's not Serena, I will go with Steffi. All right. We'll get research on that. Randy, it's Ray Langford's 53rd birthday. Hey, happy birthday. Hope we don't have the wrong Ray. <laughs> right. He was enshrined in the Cardinals Hall of Fame in 2018. Which other player was voted in by the fans that summer? Vince Coleman. And question number four, Randy. Which round was Drew Brees drafted in back in 2001? First pick in the second round. We've got a winner. A winner and still champion of the fight, Randy Carricker. Lee, I'm so sorry. It was another close one. Randy edged you out three to two. Let's go over the answers here. Reggie Jackson did play for the Baltimore Orioles in 1976, as Randy mentioned, but we do know him as a New York Yankee. It was Margaret Court, Randy, ah. the women's tennis player that has the most Grand Slam titles. She has 24 career Grand Slam titles. Impressive. Impressive, absolutely. So one more than mm -hmm. Serena Williams. Ray Langford was voted into the Cardinals Hall of Fame in 2018 with Vince Coleman and Drew Brees was drafted in the second round back in 2001. He was the first pick in the second round by the Chargers. Lee, thanks for playing again. 
right. Thank you very much. Thank you. We appreciate you joining us here on 101 ESPN. That was an interesting deal because the Chargers had the first pick in the draft, traded it to Atlanta, and Atlanta took Michael Vick. And then the Chargers wound up with the set, the fifth pick. They took LaDainian Tomlinson, and then they still had the first pick in the second round, so they took Breeze. So a couple of Hall of Famers. And then the pick that they, the extra pick that they got in that trade for Vic, they wound up with a wide receiver named Tim Dwight, who was okay, but certainly not to that level. If, if they don't take Breeze, then that doesn't look like such a great trade. I love how you can just pull all of this right off the top of your head. Yeah, it's, it's what I do. It's who I am. You are Megamind. It's, it's all I got going for me, really. I, I've always told, is it getting rainy? Randy, we, we're watching a big, big dark cloud <laughs> come right over at the studio. It's, we're looking out the window, and it's getting pretty ominous out there. I was thinking about doing something outside today. I think Mother Nature I, had I, other plans for you, Randy. Yeah. You know what? I can't. I can barely walk, so I don't really care either way. Oh, that's right. You're just going to be laying around, Michelle. If you aren't aware of it, she dropped her laptop. How's the laptop, by the way? She let, dropped her laptop on her toe. <laughs> you know, the laptop is intact. Can't say the same about my toe. Really struggling over here with this toe injury. <laughs> Feel for you. Now, uh, players that have foot injuries, I'm going to sympathize with them a little bit more. It's like a back, Randy. Your back affects oh, everything. It's the worst, yeah. A toe affects everything. Yeah. Uh, Michelle, why couldn't the bicycle stand up on its own? Oh, I don't know, Randy. Because it was too tired. <laughs> Thanks for the dad, Joe character. <laughs> Get it to T-I-R. Yeah, I got it. I got it, Randy. I think we all got it. <laughs> I, was I, trying to think of, I appreciate that one. That was a good one. I'm try- I was trying to think about something with wheels, but tires. I should have just gone with the synonym. Man, <laughs> too tired. That's pretty good. Thank you very much. Jeez. That's your dad joke of the day. You can take that one into the weekend and use it on your family. Okay, I'll, I'll present it to my dad and see what he thinks about it. Too tired. Coming up on 101 ESPN, <laughs> Buster only has a piece at ESPN.com about the players for each team that have the most to prove heading into this season. And he has an interesting choice for the Cardinals. We'll discuss next, and we want your input with the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Which Cardinal do you think has the most to prove in 2020? That's next on 101 ESPN. It is Carriker and Smallman. Great to have you with us here on 101 ESPN. Buster only wrote a piece for ESPN.com giving the players for each team that he thinks have the most to prove heading into this coming season, if indeed there is one. And he listed a couple of players and among them weren't people that we would ordinarily think for the Cardinals. He has Dexter Fowler. He said he pushed his way back into the picture for St. Louis in 2019, improving his OPS 178 points over 2018. He's 34 years old this season, year four of a five-year deal. And given the outfield depth in St. Louis ha- that St. Louis has, his opportunity in 2021 might largely be shaped by his performance this year. Because of what he did last year, what Fowler did last year, Michelle, I f- I believe that he is closer or was closer last year to the normal Dexter Fowler and the one that could be reasonably expected at the age of 83 by the Cardinals. I think he proved what he needed to prove last year. I agree. And I also think we know who Dexter Fowler is at this point. We know what he's going to give you. And even though you have a lot of young guys on the runway and the, you are wanting the Cardinals to move the pieces around and figure out the outfield puzzle, you know what Dexter Fowler yeah. is going to be. So therefore, he doesn't really have anything to prove because we know what his performance level should be. And at his best, 
he's a complimentary player. He's not an impact player that you say over the course of 162 games is going to hugely impact a lot of wins and losses if he gives you what you expect. Only also writes about Andrew Miller. The respected lefty has had a lot on his plate between staying prepared and serving as an influential voice in the Players Union. St. Louis has a $12 million option on Miller's deal for 2021, and his salaries and payrolls are rolled back. It's possible the Cardinals will decline that option unless Miller crushes it in performance this season. He is 35 years old. I thought these were two interesting choices because if I was going to go with a position player or with a pitcher, I wouldn't have picked either of these. Who would you have gone with? I would have chosen Matt Carpenter, who I think has a lot to prove heading into this 2020 season. And if I'm going with a pitcher, I'm going with Carlos Martinez. Here's a guy who we've seen the levels that he's capable of. We know the potential of Carlos Martinez in the bullpen or as a starter, but he's going back into the rotation. This is something that he's wanted for a long time. And this seems to be the season that he really needs to establish himself as as a permanent fixture in this Cardinals rotation. Those are both fantastic calls that I can't dispute at all. <laughs> what but, about you, Randy? Who would you go with? I, I'm with you. Uh, to me, Matt Carpenter stands above the rest, mm-hmm. and especially because of what he was doing in spring training one. He was getting back to the old Matt Carpenter that finished in the top five in MVP voting in 2013. He was getting away from trying to hit a home run every at-bat and trying to go the other way offensively, and he was doing so successfully. We would watch BP down there, and every single swing he took when he made contact was going to the left side of the diamond. And that's what he has to do to mm-hmm. be successful. He's he's not going to be a consistent 36 home run guy like he was in 2018, but he does have a chance to be a 50 double guy like he was in 2013. But he can't strike out like he has in the last several years. He can be a really good hitter. He just hasn't been. So I think he has a lot to prove because of his ability. Some text 65780. I think Harrison Bader has the most to prove because he was a hype prospect and hasn't lived up to that. That's a good call, too. And I I think a lot of players have a lot to prove on this team, especially when you talk about the offense. But Bader specifically, he's a guy that you know what he's going to give you defensively. He's electric uh, in a lot of ways. But if he can't get it put together offensively, you know, the Cardinals do have a lot of options in the outfield. Another great call from the 314. Most to prove, Miles Michaelis. Was 2018 the real Michaelis or was 2019? Another great call. Should I be nervous that there's so many options of players that need to prove something on the Cardinals for 2020? Especially in the rotation. (laughs) I think that's a huge thing. And from the 314, this is an interesting one. Flaherty, simply because he has to pitch well to ease the pressure on Carlos Martinez and Wainwright, has to prove himself as a full season performer. Sure. We tend to talk about Jack Flaherty and only positives because he's earned that given what we've seen out of him the second half of last season. But there is that question of can he put it together for an entire year? You'd like to think he would build off the second half that we saw last season. And I know this year is going to be an outlier. It's going to be a very, very different setup for a lot of pitchers. But yeah, we need to see Jack Flaherty put it together for an entire year to dominate for an entire year. And I like the variety of what we're seeing here on the text line 65780. This from the 314. Dakota Hudson has the most to prove. Some regression would be expected, but if he can pitch up to last season, that would make a formidable one-two punch with Flaherty and ease the pressure. So, uh, uh, with Flaherty. So that would uh, be an interesting one, too, is Dakota Hudson. We hope they play, and Jeff Passan has a new piece up at ESPN.com, Michelle, and he said that uh, he's been doing some 
negotiating between the union and the player himself in his head. And he said there is a lot to be lost on both sides. In the column that I posted just a couple minutes ago on ESPN.com, I, I split the difference. I literally did. If you look at it this way, and this is how I approach this, Major League Baseball says it's going to lose $640,000 per game played. When you take players' salaries and subtract the local television revenues, it comes out around in that range, something like that. So in a 48-game season, which MLB is tempted to implement and which it can unilaterally, that would mean that it would lose around $460 million. In an 82-game season, which is a proposal that with a full prorated share of their salaries, the players would accept, the league would lose $787 million. So there's only $320 million or so in between those two. My suggestion was that you split the difference, and you can do that in a couple of ways. MLB could pay players a full prorated share of their salaries at 65 games and lose the difference between those two. Or the players could say, hey, we're going to take, you know, an 8, 9, 10% pay cut off of our full prorata at 82 games, end up making $250 million more in the process, and we have more baseball, they have more money, everybody's happy. Now, this is like a, a very la-la land proposition because they're so far apart that the possibility of it coming together like that right now is not realistic, but ultimately that is an area in which they could, and I argue should land. Why does it take Jeff Passon to apply logic to the situation? Why can't baseball or the Players Association? As he's going through this, I'm thinking, okay, he has the figures. This is a rational argument. It sounds like a, a deal could be met here. But then he goes on to say that it's not going to have, it sounds la-la, even though it is a rational argument because they're so far apart. Gosh, it's just so frustrating because we want baseball back and you really are faced with the possibility that we're not going to see baseball this season because of egos and because of money. And that is unacceptable. And and the ego is a big part of that, Michelle, because it, it sounds like these are two sides that have to get their way. And if they don't get their way, if they don't get a clear victory, then they'll just blow up the whole thing and let it burn to the ground. Well, they're going to be waiting through those ashes for years because this is going to be a disaster of their own making. And Passon was asked how this makes baseball look. I think the Players Association, though, sees 2020 and 2021 as one and the same. We have to remember, they have ceded a lot of ground in the labor battles over the last 25 years. And I think the price of that has been peace. You know, we haven't had a strike. We haven't had a lockout. We haven't had the labor animus that really tarred and feathered the 1980s and, of course, 1994. And and I think that the players feel like they have been bullied and that this is their opportunity to stand up. Unfortunately, it's happening in the middle of a pandemic. It's happening as there is civil unrest across the country for unjust practices. It's happening amid all of these things in the United States that that have destabilized uh, our country, our heart. And it just looks so stupid. That's the frustrating part of this, right? That baseball could and should have been done with this a long time ago. 
but it missed that chance. And now, amid all of these other things, the sport looks even worse and really, I think, is is bothering fans, longtime fans, hardcore fans, who say, why can't we just play some baseball? He's preaching to the choir here with me. Oh, yeah, same. Here's the thing about the players, and yes, they have seeded a lot over the last 25 years, specifically in the last CBA. But this is not the time to be playing hardball or trying to play those cards when we have a pandemic. And most importantly, when obviously the owners are losing money. This is not and I'm not saying that Tom Ricketts is right here. The point is, is you're saying it's not biblical. (laughs) Right. Right. But there are not fans in the stands and they are playing half a season. So and the players are understanding of the prorated situation, but they are not understanding or accepting at least of the fact that there aren't fans in the stands. And that is going to cause player or ownership to make less money. If I were in Tony Clark's shoes, I I would want my players to get everything they could out of this season. I think that the owners appear to be dug in. Get what you can out of this season and fight your fight when the CBA is up after 2021. And you've got a war chest for when you get to that point. You're going to be able to pay players. You have to have the players unified, which you do now. But if you want to get stuff back in that next collective bargaining agreement, don't tick off the owners now. Wait until you have a real legitimate CBA negotiation where the owners can't implement what they want to, which is what will happen here. If you are, are are going to fight and you're going to be dug in, then the owners are going to say, like Passon said, okay, well, we'll just implement the 48-game season and you have no choice. It seems like they have a very disproportionate view of themselves as it relates to sports as a whole as well. Because if they want to talk about future revenue, you talk about looking down uh, down the road at the future, the revenue is not going to be the same if people are turned off by your sport. If people if if sports re- if the NHL is back, the NBA is back, you know we're going to see football and baseball is the only major team sport and soccer is coming back. The only major team sport in the country that doesn't come back and amongst everything that's going on in our country right now, it's because of ego and money. This is going to be a disaster for them. It's a PR disaster. It's going to be a financial disaster. And you're going to have a lot of hardcore baseball fans that will not return. And the casual fan will be gone. The casual fan will not come back. Because it's not like the NFL where if they were going to miss a season, you could just pop back in and you have your fantasy games. People play fantasy baseball, but it's not to the level of a football. You don't have that equity with the general sports fan in America to be able to miss a season. You have used the word ego a couple of times, and I think it's the most appropriate word here because baseball ownership players they're, they're making a lot of revenue and to me they have an outsized ego the nfl even if they miss games and by the way when's the last time the nfl missed a game because of a labor situation 1987 i believe it was maybe it was later than that but the the thing with football is that people can come back and entertain themselves by betting on those games yeah. easily and watching it every week all due respect to gamblers, only degenerates are betting on a lot of baseball. So football is always going to have that, and football has become our pastime. Baseball is not America's pastime anymore, and they need to recognize that because they're on shaky ground. They could fall through the the holes in the ground very easily if they mess this up. 
I have a different perspective on it because I have lived in St. Louis, which is a hotbed of baseball in America, and I've lived on the East Coast where you've got the Yankees, you've got the Red Sox, you certainly have passionate baseball fan bases, but baseball is not in the, everyone's mind eye the way that it is here. And you talk, there's big markets out there that baseball is already a secondary or a third tier mm-hmm. sport. And you're going to have hockey returning. You're going to have the NBA back. And it's going to take a step. All these other sports are going to take a big step over baseball. And I think these players and these owners think that, hey, we're willing to wait this season out and get what we want in the end. But then when baseball comes back, what are you coming back to? What are you coming back to? That's the big thing, because if baseball isn't here in 2021, I would argue that every single pro sports market in America that has a baseball team is going to have a compelling, interesting sports franchise that's playing. Whether it's Cincinnati, you have Joe Burrow. Oh, yeah. Whether it's Pittsburgh, and you have the Steelers and the Penguins coming back. It doesn't matter. Chicago is going to be intrigued by what's going on with the Blackhawks as, as they return to action. And obviously, that's a Bears town, mm-hmm. first and foremost. I had a radio guy in Chicago tell me one time during a war, uh, it was he was a guy at a news station. He said, Bears and bombs, Randy. Bears and bombs. That's all we need. Wow. And Because that was ratings for them. Wow. And... Can you think of a city with us, with the Stanley Cup champions coming back? What MLB city would be saying, oh, man, we don't have baseball. This really sucks because we don't have anything else. We are the closest thing. Yeah. And and we have the blues. Right. So we have another option. Yeah. So Baltimore will have the Ravens. Toronto is going to be following the Maple Leafs and the, the champion Raptors who are having a really good year in the NBA. There, there is not a major league city where people are going to say, man, I really miss baseball. Yeah, even going down the West Coast, Seattle, you've got the Seahawks. San Francisco, I mean, you have the 49ers who were just in the Super Bowl. L.A., let's be real, how many people are that locked into Angels games? They have a big Dodgers fan base, but it's not like they really have the NFL. But, but it's, it's a Lakers town. The Lakers, yeah. And USC. Yeah, so it's going to be tough for baseball if they don't come back this year. That's Michelle. I'm Randy. Coming up, today's big thing on 101 ESPN. That was the Character and Smallman podcast on 101 ESPN.